welcome to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Wednesday, February 15th, 2023. I'm your reader, Janet Griffith. Starting on today's first page, our first headline reads, Incoming winter storm filled with uncertainties. Iowa's fluctuating temperatures continue wear and tear of roads. By Brittany J. Miller. Iowa's peculiar weather is on full display this week as city crews took advantage of the unseasonably warm temperatures to fix potholes Tuesday, then prepare to clear blowing snow of up to seven inches in freezing conditions Thursday. Talk about the state's famous weather fluctuations. Highs will drop 25 degrees by Friday before starting to rebound this weekend. Another winter storm coming day after days of unseasonable warmth is expected to blow through portions of eastern Iowa and northwest Illinois tonight into Thursday evening. A swath of eastern Iowa, including Cedar Rapids and Iowa City, was placed under a winter storm watch Tuesday afternoon with snow of 4 to 7 inches predicted by the National Weather Service. Meteorologists with the Weather Services Bureau in the Quad Cities and Cedar Rapids Street Maintenance personnel are keeping an eye on where the heaviest band of precipitation may shift, which will determine how much snow will fall where. Rain could be thrown into the mix, too, which would leave a glaze over the snow. The Quad Cities Bureau projects that the system will be much colder than last week's heavy wet event. Bitterly cold wind chills dropping into negative single digits and teens will follow the storm Thursday night into Friday. Snow should begin to fall in eastern Iowa tonight and start building up by Thursday. Wind gusts up to 35 miles per hour could spray snow in open and rural areas. Iowa City has a 65% potential for more than 6 inches of snow, with Cedar Rapids at 62%. Both locations have 92% chances of receiving 2 inches of snow or more. Iowa will replace firefighter gear damaged in Marengo Fire. Over $600,000 will be paid using pandemic aid after C60 failed to respond by Aaron Jordan. Iowa Homeland Security will pay more than $600,000 to replace firefighting clothing and equipment damaged in a December 8, 2022 explosion and fire in Marengo after the company whose plant exploded refused to pay. The decision will allow more than 20 agencies that responded to the blaze to replace gear ruined by diesel fuel and a mysterious solvent stored at the plant, operated by C60. Without the cash infusion from the state, some departments would be fighting fires with older, uncertified gear, said Josh Humphrey, Iowa County Emergency Management Agency coordinator. We're very appreciative to get the fire departments back in operation, he said. The explosion injured a dozen employees, caused an evacuation of nearby houses, and polluted soil and water because of chemicals stored at the site, where C60 was attempting to dissolve used shingles into oil, sand, and fiberglass. The petroleum-based solvent left a tar-like coating on firefighters' clothing that professional cleaning did not remove, Mark Swift, treasurer of the Marengo Fire Department, said in December. Iowa County sent a demand letter to C60 owner Howard Brand III on January 17th, asking the company to pay the $640,121 claim for damaged equipment. Iowa Code Section 455B.392 holds people having control over a hazardous substance liable to the state or other government body for reasonable cleanup costs. Brand did not reply to that letter by the February 1st deadline, Humphrey said. The Iowa Department of Homeland Security and Emergency Management will pay up to $640,000 from the Iowa Coronavirus Fiscal Recovery Fund to replace the damaged gear, spokeswoman Lucinda Parker said in an email. 
That state fund includes money from the American Rescue Plan Act, authorized by Congress in 2021. Iowa County Emergency Management will submit an application to HSEMD that identifies the items to be replaced along with the costs, she said. After HSEMD reviews and approves the application, Iowa County Emergency Management will then complete all purchases and submit reimbursement requests to HSEMD. Fire departments that will have equipment replaced by the state include Marengo, Victor, Millersburg, Williamsburg, Amana, North English, Ladora, Coralville, Tiffin, Cedar Rapids, Washington, Grinnell, Blairstown, Iowa City, North Liberty, Norway, Belle Plaine, and Oxford. Other agencies with damaged gear from the fire are the Iowa County Emergency Management, Lynn County Hazardous Materials Team, and Johnson County Emergency Management, according to Humphrey's demand letter. Now, moving on to news from inside the paper. Study, Iowa would lose 75% of ethanol plants without pipelines. Iowa's 42 plants could qualify for federal tax credits by sequestering CO2, by Aaron Jordan. Iowa could lose 75% of its ethanol plants with cascading harm to the corn industry without carbon dioxide pipelines proposed for the state, according to a study commissioned by the Iowa Renewable Fuels Association. Carbon capture and sequestration can help Iowa's 42 ethanol plants reduce greenhouse gas emissions enough to qualify for federal tax credits that could save the industry, association leaders said Tuesday. However, many Iowans oppose carbon dioxide pipelines, particularly the use of eminent domain powers to acquire easements, and there are a handful of bills in the Iowa legislature seeking to curtail these projects. Iowans must pull together and find a fair and equitable path forward for CCS, because capturing and sequestering carbon will be life or death for many of Iowa ethanol plants over the next five years, said Al Giese, a board member of Quad County Corn Processors, an ethanol plant in Galva, and president of the Renewable Fuels Association board. Through the Inflation Reduction Act, which President Joe Biden signed into law in August, the federal government will provide incentives for industries to reduce or sequester greenhouse gas emissions, which are contributing to climate change. Three proposed pipeline projects in Iowa would gather CO2 from ethanol plants, compress it into a liquid, and ship it underground to sequestration sites in Illinois and North Dakota. With the pipelines in place, Iowa's ethanol plants could lower their carbon intensity scores and qualify to sell ethanol into new markets, such as sustainable aviation fuel, Association Executive Director Monty Shaw said in an online news conference Tuesday. Without pipelines, most of Iowa's ethanol plants wouldn't get the tax credits and would see markets dwindle, causing as many as three-quarters of the plants to close, according to the study by Decision Innovation Solutions. Loss of 75% of the Iowa ethanol industry would result in an eventual decline in revenues from ethanol plants of more than $10.3 billion per year, the study states. These losses would reverberate throughout the Iowa economy as corn prices would adjust downward. The study predicts the ethanol industry would move to other Midwest states, that have authorized CO2 pipelines. Evidence found in Donahue's van included deputy's gun. Ten shell casings, bullets found at Casey's matched Donahue's pistol by Trish Mahaffey. Lynn County Sheriff's deputies testified Tuesday about evidence, two guns and stolen items found in a minivan belonging to a Chicago man who shot a deputy during the robbery of a Casey's store in Coggin on June 20, 2021. A criminalist with the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation Crime Lab also testified about DNA found on items and clothing, but all results were too weak, a mixture, or too complex to develop a match to Stanley Donahue, who is on trial this week for shooting a Lynn County deputy 
and robbing the Casey's. However, the other criminalists did determine all the shell casings and bullets found at the store, including one bullet found in the body of Deputy William Halverson, who was shot seven times by Donahue, were all fired from a 40 caliber pistol found in Donahue's van that he crashed while fleeing from authorities after the shooting. Donahue, 38, is charged with two counts of first-degree robbery, attempted murder of a peace officer, two counts of false imprisonment, willful injury, attempt to elude, disarming a peace officer, trafficking in stolen weapons, and possession of a firearm as a felon. According to testimony last Friday, Donahue, during the robbery, forced two store employees into a cooler and store more, stole more than $230 in cash, 89 packs of cigarettes, numerous car chargers, gift cards, and personal belongings of the employees. Sergeant David Omar testified he went to where Donahue crashed the minivan, which had Illinois license plates, after leading deputies on a pursuit. He looked inside the van and saw two handguns on the driver's side floorboard, and Omar recognized one as being a service clock that deputies such as Halverson are issued. According to Halverson's testimony Friday and Monday, Donahue took Halverson's Glock out of his holster after he was shot. The other gun was a Sig Sauer 40 caliber pistol, which is a smaller gun, Omar said. He also found a plastic bag and garbage bag with items, cash, change, cigarettes, taken from the store, and personal items belonging to the employees. The cash and change found on Donahue and in his van totaled around $300, Lynn County Sheriff's Detective Sean Ireland said. Ireland was responsible for collecting and processing the evidence taken from the store and found in Donahue's van and his pockets when he was arrested June 21, 2021. Some of the items, changed from registers and employees' personal belongings, also were found in a cornfield near the location where Donahue was found walking along Aldridge Road near Coggan when he was arrested, Ireland said. Photos of the evidence were identified by Ireland and shown to the jurors during his testimony. There also were photos showing, shown of Halverson's clothing, which had blood and bullet holes from the seven shots to his leg and torso. Included in those photos was Halverson's protective vest, which also had bullet holes and one slug embedded in the vest and his duty belt and holster that was torn when Donahue removed it. Ireland also processed Donahue's pants and black t-shirt, his hooded sweatshirt, and brown Timberland boots found in a ditch near the cornfield. All items had dirt and mud on them. The fingerprints found on the guns were sent to Cedar Rapids police to, to test and compare because they have more equipment and expertise. The swabs for DNA and shell casings and bullets were sent to the state crime lab for testing, Ireland said. 28 layoffs at Kirkwood will save $1.5 million annually. Programmatic cuts changes will save maintenance and replacement costs by Vanessa Miller. Cuts that Kirkwood Community College announced Monday resulted in 28 layoffs, some occurring across programs the campus is eliminating or changing because of low enrollment. Both full-time and part-time employees were laid off in two programs the college is closing, Dental Technology and the Energy Production and Distribution Program. Kirkwood announced plans Monday to close those four credit programs following an internal review of its operations, which officials said wasn't documented in a report. Different heads of each division of the college took a look at their operations in terms of enrollment, cost, and future expectations, Kirkwood spokesman Justin Haynes said. Kirkwood reported 19 students currently enrolled in its dental technology program aimed at teaching the art and science of designing and fabricating custom-made corrective devices and replacements for natural teeth over two years. Kirkwood has 18 students in its energy production and distribution technology program, which teaches energy industry fundamentals with special attention on utility-scale turbine repair and maintenance, 
students in that program regularly climb and maintain a two and a half megawatt wind turbine on campus. Those programs will end once the enrolled students complete their studies with some on pace to graduate in May and others looking to finish in 2024 or 2025, Haynes said. In addition to the program closures, Kirkwood announced plans to eliminate the behind-the-wheel portion of its commercial driver's license Class A program due to declining enrollment over the last five years and the significant and ongoing cost of maintaining up-to-date technology and equipment. Kirkwood's broader transportation program offers a variety of theory and hands-on training for tractor trailers, school buses, dump trucks, and other large vehicles. For the current budget year, as of January, 2,355 students have been served through Kirkwood's transportation programming. Of that, 45 have been in the CDLA program, Haynes said. Over the last five years, that program, specific to tractor trailers, served a total of 323. This change will only impact the behind-the-wheel portion of the CDLA program, according to Hain. We will still offer classroom theory for CDLA and both theory and hands-on for all other programs. Plus, he said, Kirkwood has worked out an agreement with a third party to continue to provide the hands-on training component for students needing their CDLA in Eastern Iowa. Details of that arrangement weren't immediately made public. This week's cuts come after Kirkwood last summer closed two of its 14 locations and in January announced plans to sell its Iowa City campus and relocate most of its operations to the regional center in Coralville. Running concurrent with Kirkwood's financial moves and enrollment losses amplified during the pandemic, an independent auditor at the end of the 2022 budget year in June reported the college had improved its financial position. The college has executed sound financial management strategies in recent years to offset the impact of declining enrollment, according to the audit conducted by Denman and Company LLP and made public through the Iowa State Auditor's Office. CR strategy to reduce gun violence continues success. Initiative was housed in Greater Cedar Rapids Community Foundation by Marissa Payne. Management of Group Violence Intervention, the Collaborative Community community Gun Violence Reduction Strategy, has transitioned over the last year, and Cedar Rapids officials say the effort continues to see success in keeping people alive and out of jail. For the last year, nonprofit Foundation 2 Crisis Services has managed the outreach work of GVI. The strategy, launched in December 2019, aims to engage those who are at risk of being offenders or victims of gun violence and provide them with community supports. This effort stemmed from funding given to the Creating Safe, Equitable, and Thriving Communities Fund with the Greater Cedar Rapids Community Foundation. The foundation assumed initial project management. Last year, Rachel Rockwell's departure from the Community Foundation, where she managed the initiative, raised some questions about the program's long-term path going forward. At the time, Rockwell said the GBI project manager position needed a long-term home and funding. In a presentation Tuesday to the Cedar Rapids City Council, Carla Tweetball, the Community Foundation's Senior Vice President of Programs and Community Investment, thanked the city for the GBI fund established through the Cedar Rapids Police Department. She said it will provide ongoing sustainable funding. Between November 2018 and October 2022, the city made six payments to the Community Foundation, totaling $512,671.12, according to the Cedar Rapids Finance Department. The money has supported the SET fund and later GBI specifically as that initiative took off. The Community Foundation was the catalyst around which community partners rallied to propel the effort forward, Tweetball said, but without Foundation 2, this wouldn't have a home. 
Foundation 2 Chief Operating Officer Aaron Langdon said law enforcement and GBI partners in 2022 attempted 75 custom notifications. This is the process through which law enforcement, street outreach, and community members deliver a credible message against violence to at-risk individuals. CR Fatal Fire Caused by Smoking Materials by Emily Anderson a fatal fire at the Roadway Inn in Cedar Rapids on February 1st was caused by smoking materials that were in the room, according to the Cedar Rapids Fire Department. David Oman, 50, was killed in the fire at 4011 16th Avenue Southwest, according to his brother, Michael Oman. Michael said he was working when he got the message from the mother of David's children saying that he needed to call her. David's 26-year-old daughter, Hannah Oman, who lives in Washington, had gotten a call from the medical examiner and she informed the rest of the family of his death. David left behind two children, Hannah and Nathan Oman, 21. David Oman was a talented machinist and was certified in multiple types of welding, according to his brother. He was born in North Dakota and raised in Mount Vernon and spent his adult years living in various states working in welding. He moved back to the Cedar Rapids area a few years ago, but Michael said they hadn't seen each other much in their adult years. Both of David and Michael's parents have already passed away. Their mother died in 2020 and their father in 2012. It was just basically us two left and we had a little rough patch between each other, especially being separated for so many years, Michael Oman said. It's just been rough, basically grieving without much of any support, except my wife. Senate advances proposal to reduce Iowa property taxes. Local governments warn lost revenue will impact ability to provide services by Tom Barton. Iowa Senate Republicans advanced a bill Tuesday aimed at, it, at simplifying and reducing property taxes that representatives of Iowa's public schools, cities, and counties warn will lead to public service cuts. Lawmakers held a subcommittee hearing on Senate Study Bill 1124 by Senator Dan Dawson, Republican of Council Bluffs, who chairs the Iowa Senate's Committee on Tax Policy. Dawson's bill would cap cities and counties' general property tax levies and reduce the value at which properties are assessed. The bill consolidates property tax levies that fund local government operations and requires all city and county governments to operate under general levy rates on property tax assessments set in 1975, while providing some exceptions, plus a yearly growth rate to account for inflation. The bill also phases out the public education and recreation tax levy used by schools for items like new playground equipment, before and after school programming, summer school programming, adult education, and community swimming pools. Dawson said those items can be funded through local options uh, local option sales and services tax for school infrastructure. Iowans want quality services for the property taxes. Iowans have also said their property taxes are too high and the system is stacked against them and they want a better seat at the table, Dawson said. He called the bill and others tackling property tax policy a blueprint meant to spark a constructive conversation to make the property tax system better and fair for the taxpayers. The study bill before us today is the first part in reforming our system repairing our levy system, and addressing head-on the massive assessment spikes that our homeowners and business owners will see in their assessment letters coming in the mail starting next month, Dawson said. Mayors, city administrators, county supervisor, county sheriffs, and public school officials said the bill undermines local control and hinders their ability to respond to the needs of their community. Davenport Mayor Mike Matson, chair of the Metropolitan Coalition that represents Iowa's largest cities, including Cedar Rapids, said the bill limits the ability of cities to capture new tax growth to pay for basic services, discouraging a city from growing. Bondurant City Administrator Marquetta Oliver warned the bill, the bill will hamstring the state's effort to attract and retain a quality workforce 
if communities are unable to pay for the amenities and safe streets residents want and expect. Oliver said the bill could cause the city to lose the equivalent of 42% of its law enforcement budget. Taxpayer advocacy groups, the Iowa Farm Bureau, Iowa Association of Realtors, and Iowa Business Council argue property tax collections in the state have increased well beyond inflation and population growth. Senate GOP lawmakers balk at over-the-counter birth control. Reynolds wants pharmacists to dispense birth control without a prescription by Tom Barton. An Iowa Senate subcommittee advanced an omnibus bill Tuesday that includes portions of Governor Kim Reynolds' sweeping health care bill, but not her proposal to allow access to over-the-counter birth control. The bill, Senate Study Bill 1139, provides $2 million to pregnancy resource centers that counsel against abortion and adds programming for fathers. Additional funding for regional centers of excellence to improve access to medical specialties in rural and underserved communities. The bill invests at $575,000 to fund two additional regional centers, increasing the total number to four. Four weeks paid maternity leave for mothers and one week paid paternity leave for fathers following the birth or adoption of a child. $560,000 for a state-funded family medicine obstetric fellowship program. Expanded eligibility requirements under a state-funded scholarship program for students who age out of Iowa's foster care system or are adopted after age 16 increased reimbursement for allowable expenses related to adopting a child. The bill removes access to over-the-counter birth control that appeared in the House version of the bill, House Study Bill 91. The bill proposed by Reynolds would allow pharmacists to dispense birth control without a prescription. Angela Koch with the Family Planning Council of Iowa shared studies from Washington University Medical School and American Journal of Public Health showing providing additional access to contraception reduces unplanned pregnancies and abortions. Amy Campbell, a lobbyist representing the Iowa Nurses Association, told lawmakers the association is concerned contraceptive coverage is not included in the Senate bill. We think that as the governor said, the best way to reduce abortions is to reduce the number of unintended pregnancies, Campbell said. So we feel that additional access to contraceptives would be a positive with our state. Campbell, too, said the group is disappointed the bill does not include extending postpartum Medicaid coverage to 12 months. The Medicaid program finances about 4 in 10 births in the United States. Federal law requires states to provide pregnancy-related Medicaid coverage through 60 days postpartum. After that period, individuals may lose coverage in states without Medicaid expansion. Subcommittee Chair Senator Jeff Edler, Republican of State Center, said lawmakers continue to look at state Medicaid data to ensure that we are spending taxpayer dollars correctly because that is a very large price tag. Abortion rights advocates continued to oppose funding to pregnancy resource centers, saying the centers mislead women about their options and misrepresent themselves as legitimate medical providers. They also note centers are not fully licensed medical facilities and thus are not bound by federal privacy laws under the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act and are not required to maintain client confidentiality. The governor's proposal would establish fatherhood engagement grants for nonprofit organizations that assist men in finding employment, managing child support obligations, transitioning from incarceration, accessing health care, understanding child development, and enhancing parenting skills. Lawmakers advance bill loosening child labor laws. More jobs would be open to Iowa teenagers under a bill House lawmakers advanced on Tuesday. The bill would allow 14-year-olds to work in freezers and meat coolers, load non-power tools to and from vehicles, and work in laundry and detasseling. 
15-year-olds would be able to do work such as loading and unloading groceries from trucks, stocking shelves with items up to 30 pounds, and working as a lifeguard. People aged 16 and 17 also would be allowed to serve drinks at bars and restaurants. Teens could also receive a wait also could receive a waiver from the Department of Workforce Development or Education to work in industries like construction, manufacturing, and mining if the job is part of a work-based learning program and meets certain safety requirements. Business groups supported the legislation during a public hearing, saying the bill would help address Iowa's workforce shortages and provide students with a hands-on way to study vocational skills before leaving high school. The bill advanced with Republican support John, Representative John Wills, Republican of Spirit Lake, said the changes would allow teens to learn important lessons at earlier ages. We need to give our kids a chance. We need to give our kids the ability to learn life lessons, he said. But several organizations raised concerns about the bill, particularly the provision allowing minors to work on construction sites and manufacturing with a waiver. Opponents said the loosening of the law could put children in dangerous situations. We're not that far away from dozens of children working in a factory assembling parts, said Peter Hurd, a lobbyist for the Iowa chapter of the American Federation of Labor. See our schools coaching to meet Justice Department settlement. With more than 60 special education jobs open, director wants to retain staff by Grace King. Cedar Rapids school officials are focused on supporting their special education staff as the district implements changes agreed upon in a settlement last year with the U.S. Department of Justice. The agreement, signed in September, required the Cedar Rapids Community School District to stop the use of seclusion in all school buildings and programs beginning October 10, 2022. Seclusion rooms are used in many Iowa school districts as a last resort if students are at risk of harming themselves or others. The agreement also required the district to make significant changes to limit the use of physical restraint and rethink how student behavior is analyzed and responded to. There are almost 60 special special education job openings in the district for the 2022-23 and 2023-24 school years, the majority of those being paraprofessionals, according to listings posted on Teach Iowa. We've tried to hire all year long and haven't had applicants for those positions, said Lisa Glenn, who is in her first year as Executive Director of Special Services for Cedar Rapids Schools. Glenn previously worked for five years as Special Education Director for the Iowa City Community School District. Glenn said her biggest concern is supporting and coaching educators already in special education positions in the district to retain the staff they already have. People working in our buildings have hard jobs, Glenn said. We need to make sure people are feeling supported and coached and have the tools they need to best serve our students. Unless we can support them, they really are left hanging out there, which is not what we want, she said Monday in an update to the school board about the settlement. Over the last few months, the board has approved new policies required by the settlement, This includes a crisis intervention protocol specifying appropriate proactive interactions, crisis prevention and de-escalation techniques should be used to prevent and, when necessary, respond to students experiencing behavioral challenges. Monday, the school board approved additional policy revisions, including attendance permits for students who qualify for special education services and for student discipline and suspension. An in-district attendance permit is required for a student to attend a school within the district outside of his or her resident attendance area. One of the key policy changes is working to prevent crisis instead of intervening during or after a crisis. We would rather prevent a crisis from happening than respond to a crisis, Glenn said. Fund for Iowa veterans would be tightened to avoid future depletion by Aaron Murphy. Eligibility and payouts from a state fund to cover emergency expenses for Iowa veterans would be tightened under a proposal from the head of the State Department on Veterans Affairs. 
The proposal was designed in response to last year's depletion of the state fund, which left thousands of dollars worth of veterans' claims unpaid. Income eligibility would be lowered, returning the threshold to a previous standard, and payouts would be capped, both annually and lifetime, under the proposal from Iowa Veterans Affairs Director Todd Jacobus. We need, what we need to do is we need to manage the system differently than what we've managed it up to at this point, and I think that's very possible, Jacobus told the Gazette last month. It all has to do with management of the resources that were given by the state legislature through the trust fund, and we can do that. The Iowa Veterans Trust Fund is available to low-income Iowa veterans who need assistance making emergency payments for things like medical equipment, emergency room care, dental and hearing care, emergency housing and vehicle repairs, counseling, unemployment assistance, and job training. Last October, for the first time in a decade, the allowable spending from the trust fund was depleted. State officials cited a recent expansion of eligibility in the program, increased claims from 2020 due to the COVID-19 pandemic and duration, and increased costs for claims due to inflation. The commission awarded $632,000 in claims in 2019 and $573,000 in 2020. During 2021, the commission awarded nearly $1.3 million in claims, according to the trust fund's annual report. Late last month, Governor Kim Reynolds approved more than $440,000 in federal pandemic relief funding to address the trust fund's claims backlog. Under Jacobus' proposal, eligibility for the trust fund would be reduced to Iowa veterans below 200% of federal poverty level, which equates to annual income of $29,160 for an individual or $60,000 for a family of four. That would return the program to its previous level, Recently, it had been increased to 300% of federal poverty level. Also under Jacobus' proposal, payouts would be capped at $5,000 annually and $10,000 for life. And under the proposal, all payouts would be subject to final approval by the Veterans Affairs Director. Currently, applications are considered and approved by the Iowa Commission of Veterans Affairs within the state VA department. You are listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Wednesday, February 15, 2023, on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now let's turn to today's obituaries. Patricia A. Capiccioli, 56, of Cedar Rapids, died Friday, February 10, 2023, at Unity Point St. Luke's Hospital. A private family viewing was held Monday at Papich Cuba Funeral Home East before Patricia was cremated. Patricia was born March 17, 1966, in Cedar Rapids to, to Suzanne Langton and Robert Wolverton. She was a lifelong resident of Cedar Rapids. Patricia was a homemaker and loved watching her soaps on TV, listening to her music, and talking to her sisters. Patricia was greatly loved by her family and friends and will be truly missed. A celebration of life will be held at 1.30 p.m. Saturday, February 18th at CJ's Sports Bar and Grill in Czech Village. Terry G. DeMoss, 78, of Oxford Junction, passed away on Sunday, February 12, 2023, at his home. His funeral service will be held at 4 p.m. on Saturday, February 18, 2023, at Dawson Funeral Services in Oxford Junction. A visitation will be held from 3 to 4 p.m. on Saturday at Dawson Funeral Services. Burial will be at Massillon Cemetery at a later date. Terry Jean was born on April 14, 1944, in Clinton County, Iowa, to Clifford DeMoss and Mildred Wolfe. He graduated from Jefferson High School. On April 1, 1966, he was united in marriage to Patricia, to Patricia Jones. Terry worked as a mechanic and was a man of many trades. 
He enjoyed visiting the casino, searching for mushrooms, and deer hunting. He loved spending time with his family and playing games. Cards of condolence may be directed to Dawson Funeral Services, P.O. Box 258, Wyoming, Iowa, 52362. Online condolences may be left for his family at DawsonFuneral.com. Cameron Sullenberger, 54, of Cedar Rapids, Iowa, passed away on Saturday, February 11, 2023, at Mercy Medical Center in Cedar Rapids. Visitation will be from 3 to 8 p.m. on Friday, February 17, 2023, at the Knoll Ridge Christian Church, located at 7111 C Avenue Northeast, Cedar Rapids. Funeral service will be held at 11 a.m. on Saturday, February 18, 2023, at the church. Entrusted with the arrangements is Cedar Memorial Park Funeral Home. Cameron was born January 9, 1969, in Tehran, Iran, the son of Fred and Nazi Eslanian Sullenberger. He was raised in El Paso, Texas, and attended Dowell Elementary, Terrace Hills Middle School, Andrus High School, and Northeast Christian Academy. Cameron achieved a Bachelor of Music Education degree with honors in piano and voice from the University of North Texas and a Master of Music Education degree with concentration in choral conducting from Vandercook College of Music in Chicago. His greatest love came from music and teaching with UIL-celebrated award-winning show choirs full production musicals in a middle school, and working with several ISDs, with Plano ISD the longest and last while in Texas. Cameron was currently working as a successful private vocal studio while serving as the Senior Director of Worship, Music, and Creative Arts and Spiritual Growth Coordinator at Knoll Ridge Christian Church. He was the co-founder and musical director of Revival Theater Company. As an expression of sympathy, memorial contributions may be sent to the family, care of Dr. Stephen Craig, 708 12th Avenue, Fulton, Illinois, 61252. Please leave a message, tribute, or memory to Cameron's family at cedarmemorial.com. Arlene and John Janicek, ages 81 and 75, of Cedar Rapids, Iowa, passed away on Saturday, February 11, 2023, due to complications of an automobile accident. Visitations celebrating Arlene and John's lives will be held from 1 to 3 p.m. Sunday, February 19th, 2023 at the Cedar Memorial Chapel of Memories. Memorial services will follow at 3 p.m. Interment will be held in the Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery at a later date. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be directed to the family. Online condolences may be left at cedarmemorial.com. Beverly B. Rankin, 95, former Strawberry Point, Iowa resident, passed away Thursday, February 9, 2023, at ABCM Rehabilitation Center in Independence, Iowa. Beverly Bain Brockmeyer was born August 25, 1927, to Benjamin C. and Henrietta Mae Gibbs Brockmeyer. She was united in marriage to Harold Rankin on April 16, 1946. They were parents to son Craig and daughter Carol. Beverly was a talented crafter and enjoyed their yearly family vacations and campouts with the Winnebago Wheels. She retired after 31 years of service as the school secretary for Scarmont, Starmont Community District. After they retired, Beverly and Harold spent winters with the rest of the Snowbirds in Southern Texas. Visitation and memorial service will be held at a later date. Online condolences may be directed to the family at iowacremation.com. Donald Joseph Manter, 78, Cedar Rapids, died Saturday, December 17, 2022, at home after a valiant fight with COPD and cancer. Memorial Mass, 10 a.m., Saturday, February 18, 2023, St. Patrick Catholic Church, Cedar Rapids. Father Dennis Miller will officiate. 
Visitation, 9 to 10 a.m. prior to Mass. Internment, Mount Calvary Cemetery, Cedar Rapids. Military rites will be provided at the cemetery. Stuart Baxter Funeral and Memorial Services of Cedar Rapids is assisting the family. Ellen Lamon Coleman, 74, of Cedar Rapids, passed away Friday, February 10, 2023, at her home in Cedar Rapids. Stuart Baxter Funeral and Memorial Services of Cedar Rapids are caring for Ellen's family. Ellen Coleman, the daughter of Emily Beck Sunberg, was born November 20, 1948, in Ohio. Ellen was united in marriage to Lee Coleman on November 23, 1981. The couple made their home in Cedar Rapids. Ellen worked as a dog groomer and mother and also retired from Rockwell Collins in Cedar Rapids. She enjoyed reading, dancing, oldies music, and was a big animal lover. Ellen loved spending time with her family, but she also had a very special place in her life for her pet dogs, Sassy and Rocky. Please share your support and memories with Ellen's family on her tribute wall at stuartbaxter.com. That concludes today's obituaries. Moving on to today's editorial page, uh, there is one letter to the editor today. It is from Roger Helmrichs of Dundee. The headline reads, Look at Ways to Reduce the Cost of Government. I recently ran across a letter from a relative that really made our federal spending habits hit home. Below is a quote from the end of this letter. A Congress like the last one would be bankrupt in any other land. They spend millions like it is paper money. The richness and size of the nation alone makes one fearful of the way money is handled. It is high time that we become more conservative in fiscal matters. Enough about politics. What strikes me is that this letter was written September 5, 1866. Yes, 1866. This young man had just finished fighting in the Civil War. And 156 years later, nothing has changed except the numbers are bigger. I'm sure Joe Biden and Kevin McCarthy will eventually come to some agreement to remove a few dollars from the trillion-dollar debacle, giving the Republicans a moral victory that we reduce the spending. But our nation's debt will still continue to climb, and Congress will agree to increase the debt ceiling. When will Congress say no to increase spending? When will we look at what it costs to run the agencies, bureaus, departments, etc. within the federal government? As I've always maintained, the federal government is the largest business in the world, and if we ran it more like a business, we would spend time looking for ways to reduce operating costs without reducing program, programming. With over 2 million people employed by the federal government, we have opportunities to reduce costs. Again, that is a letter from Roger Helmrichs of Dundee in today's Gazette. There's a guest column today. Uh, it is from, uh, written by Marty Bowler, who lives in Iowa City. Republicans are no longer wide awakes. Today, there's a political firestorm surrounding the idea of being woke. Here's just one example. In November 2022, Florida's Republican governor gave a fiery speech declaring, we will never surrender to the woke mob. Florida is where woke goes to die. As a historian, I find it painfully hilarious that among Ameri American conservatives, conservatives today, the phrase being woke has been weaponized to criticize members of the opposition party. The reason I smile, you ask? Many don't realize that the Republican Party, when birthed just before the 1860 national election, came into existence because thousands of young Americans had grown tired and weary of a political system that failed to recognize Thomas Jefferson's words found in the De Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Many in the North were fed up with a political system that refused to stand up for those in our midst who were enslaved, treating them as property instead of human beings. 
In the late 1850s, the political system across America was failing to address a very sad truth. Here in Iowa, for example, while we were technically a free state, there were still many in both the Democrat and Whig parties who either supported the enslavement of humans or simply believed it best politically to ignore the subject. Across the nation, there arose a radical voice of truth. Young people began joining together, hearing the cry of freedom for all. In cities across the United States, these radicals began forming local political organizations that stood up for those who had no voice. Their name? The Wide Awakes. Yes, you heard it correctly. These radicals called themselves the Wide Awakes, and the brand new political party, called the Republican Party, was birthed in Pittsburgh in 1856, calling for all Americans to awaken to the tyranny of slavery. By 1860, when this new party gathered in Chicago for its first national convention, many of the party leaders were members of the Wide Awakes, and it was in this woke condition they nominated a young statesman from Illinois as their choice to become the 16th president of the United States, Abraham Lincoln. Isn't it intriguing that today's Republican Party has taken basically the same language that helped form their party in 1860 and its leaders now treated as derogatory? History shows us during the turbulent times of the 1850s and 60s, men and women from both existing parties, Democrat and Whig, left their political power behind in order to stand with these truths they found to be self-evident. Here in Iowa, for example, our first territorial governor, Robert Lucas, a longtime Democrat, left his party to stand with what was right. Iowa's Civil War Governor Samuel Kirkwood was a longtime Democrat in Ohio before switching parties to become an abolitionist. So today, where are the awakes, those who will stand with those American truths that are self-evident? Might I suggest that we all awaken to these foundational truths that are supposedly self-evident? And if that means I'm woke, so be it. Again, that is a guest column in today's Gazette from Marty Bowler of Iowa City. Now here are a couple items I did not have time for in the first half hour. Family of couple killed in crash remembers them as inseparable by Emily Anderson. Arlene and John Janicek, ages 81 and 75 of Cedar Rapids, were killed Saturday evening in a car crash at the intersection of Wiley Boulevard Southwest and Williams Boulevard Southwest. The couple had been married for 43 years and they were inseparable according to their daughter, Dawn Lane Cannonberg. They were very loving people. Our parents were very loving, very kind, sweet. Mom loved bingo, Lane Cannonberg said. They were two peas in a pod. They were always together. The Yanacheks were retired and didn't go out much. They often spent time playing card games and board games together at home. Lane Cannonberg said she suspects they were out running a quick errand when the crash happened. The couple made a point to get together with their family as often as possible. They leave behind four siblings between the two of them, nine children, most of whom live in the Cedar Rapids area, 26 grandchildren and 25 great-grandchildren, according to an obituary sent to the Gazette. They came to as many family gatherings as they could. That was the highlight of their life, was getting together with family, Lane Cannonberg said. Her parents attended as many of their family members' events as possible, going to show choir performances and sports events. They especially loved watching football and were excited to watch the Kansas City Chiefs play in the Super Bowl on Sunday. On Saturday night, Lane Cannonberg said she was called to the hospital where she was directed to a consultation room with the rest of her family. I knew something was wrong. I knew we're only in this room for one reason. I didn't know what it was or who it was, Lane Cannonberg said. The fact that it was both of them so suddenly, it was very shocking. I think I'm still in shock. I have to shake my head several times a day. Since receiving the news, the family has been together almost constantly supporting each other. The Yanacek's dog, Minnie, who was in the car with them during the crash and survived, has already been adopted by one of the couple's granddaughters. 
We're just devastated, and our family appreciates all thoughts and prayers, Lane Cannonberg said. UI Selling Mayflower, Building Dorm for Returning Students. UI Wants to Build New 40 to $60 Million Dorm, by Vanessa Miller. Nearly 55 years after a private firm built the Mayflower apartment community overlooking the Iowa River, marketed to students as a luxury dorm, and 40 years after the University of Iowa bought the eight-story building outright, the UI is planning to sell its Mayflower residence hall. With those sale proceeds, plus any borrowing they need to do, UI administrators want to build a 40 to $60 million residence hall for returning students. Currently, most UI residence hall space is prioritized for freshmen. Built in 1968, the Mayflower Residence Hall is located over one mile from academic classes, food service, and residence hall neighborhoods, according to a UI summary of its housing master plan going before the Board of Regents next week. For first-year students, it is the last chosen and first transferred from residence hall. The master plan indicates a new returning student hall could hold between 250 and 400 beds, making it similar in size to Stanley Hall, housing 354 students, or Dom Hall, housing 344 students on the east side of campus. The plan aims to build the new hall on UI-owned land, also on the east side of campus. UI officials also shared plans to undertake a series of renovation projects costing between $5 and $10 million each. Although administrators in the documents didn't spell out the specifics of those potential project, projects, they did indicate work of under $5 million as planned for Dom next year and Reno Hall on the west side of campus in 2027. Upgrades of over $5 million are planned for Courier Hall on the east side next year, Burge Hall this year and again in 2026, and Hillcrest Hall on the west side of campus. A $23 million project to upgrade Hillcrest began last year with plans to wrap in 2024. Funding for those upgrades will come from UI Housing Renewal and Improvement Funds, while the UI plans to pay for its new returning student hall with Mayflower sale proceeds and debt, according to Regent documents. Although Mayflower, 1110 North Dubuque Street, sits about a mile from the UI Pentecrest, academic buildings, and Iowa City's downtown, it's only a short walk to Iowa City Parks, the Iowa River Path, and Hampshire Auditorium. Mayflower houses 1,032 students in suite-style rooms, meaning students in a single or double room share a kitchen and a bathroom with one other room. They're furnished with desks and lofted beds and offer amenities such as air conditioning, a fitness center, and a convenience store. For the current academic year, Mayflower's double room rates are $4,254, below other similar units in Burge, Dom, Catlett Hall, and Reno, for example. Mayflower was built in the 1960s in place of what started in 1851 as the Walter Terrell Mansion, home of the entrepreneur who built a dam and grain mill on the Iowa River. The mansion in the 1930s or 1940s became the Mayflower Inn, featuring the Mayflower Nightclub, before it was demolished and replaced with apartments. Moving on to sports, our first article is about the Boys State Wrestling Tournament. The title is Wrestling Immortality. City High's Ben Keeter on the verge of joining a pair of exclusive clubs by K.J. Pilcher. Ben Keeter contemplated how he wanted his high school wrestling career to look. The Iowa City High senior had plenty to consider. The wins, the records, the titles, and domination. A thrilling style and his impact on the aspiring Ben Keeters of the world. The biggest thing is as an entertainer, you could say, and just being fun to watch, Keeter said. More importantly, being a good role model for future wrestlers. I enjoy talking to kids at tournaments. I'll take pictures at tournaments and sign stuff. I definitely say being a big role model for those kids, helping them and making sure they enjoy it. If they work hard, they can see what it can lead to. 
Keeter has one more opportunity to emblazon his image on high school wrestling fans of all ages when he competes in the Class 3A state wrestling tournament starting today at Wells Fargo Arena in Des Moines. He has an opportunity to join the state's most elite group as the 32nd four-time state champion and 7th to complete an undefeated high school career. The biggest thing is do what I always do and take it one match at a time, Keeter said. I'm not going to lie and say I'm not thinking about it. It's my last tournament. I've been thinking about it a lot. From the time he joined the City High lineup, Keeter has tortured opponents. He enters state with a 107-0 career record, including a 35-0 mark this season. He has dominated most of his foes, earning 101 bonus point victories for a 94.4% rate. Only 11 of those matches have gone a full six minutes, tallying a combined 88 pins and technical falls. He has had just six matches end in decision, and four of those have come at the state tournament. Three were in his freshman season, including a 4-3, 160-pound finals win against Lindmar's Tate Nachtborn, who is trying to reach his fourth final and third title this year as well. Keeter is a multiple sport phenom who has announced his plans to wrestle and play football for the University of Iowa. Baseball helped him form a relationship with one of the best ever. Keeter has been a member of the Little Hawks baseball team and played with Gable Mitchell, the grandson of Waterloo West, Iowa State, Iowa legend Dan Gable. They were introduced and hit it off. The two were pictured together in August before Keeter left for the 2022 World Championships in Sofia, Bulgaria. The 1972 Olympic gold medalist posed with the eventual 213-pound U-20 world champion, going 7-0 and pinning an opponent from Turkey in the final. It's cool to sit back and realize how lucky and fortunate I am to be able to have a relationship with him, said Keeter, knowing their families have watched NCAA tournaments together. At first, that's how you look at it, but once you get to know him, it's just like another relationship. He's just another person. Now, Iowa men's basketball. Chris Murray living up to expectations. Junior follows templates set by Garza, brother Keegan, by Mike Halas. Is Chris Murray taken for granted? Murray had 28 points, 14 rebounds, three steals, two assists, and two blocked shots for Iowa in its 68-56 men's basketball win Sunday at Minnesota. That's a stat line that would have gotten big headlines here in the not-so-distant past. But then came National Player of the Year Luke Garza and first-team All-America NBA lottery pick Keegan Murray, and a 28-14 was no longer an extreme rarity in these parts. Junior forward Chris Murray has hit 30 points four times and averages 22 in Big Ten play. So Sunday's 28-14 from him just kind of blended into the rest of Monday morning's sports section. But here's the thing. Murray is having a superb season. Iowa wouldn't have won eight of its last 11 games without him. It wouldn't be favored to earn an NCAA tournament bid without him. It wouldn't be unbeaten in its six 2023 home, game, in its six 2023 home games without him. The Hawkeyes were 7-7 through 14 Big Ten games last year on the way to 12-8. They're 8-6 this season and will be a big favorite to beat Ohio State at home Thursday night to get to 9-6. Murray was Iowa's sixth man last year. He was the team's fourth leading scorer at 9.7 points per game. With brother Keegan off to Sacramento and Chris staying put after going through the NBA pre-draft process, this became Chris' season, for better or worse. The answer has been for the better. Is he happy with how things have gone so far? I am, honestly, Murray said Tuesday. There were obviously pressure especially at the beginning of the season, just to live up to expectations. Murray was voted a preseason All-Big Ten player by league media, who saw enough of him last season to expect him to get bigger shoulders, figuratively. Honestly, he said, I just wanted to win. I would do anything to help this team win. 
that's honestly the biggest reason I came back, just to try to help this team win games and help take it to a different level than when I came here, leave the program in a better place. It will be hard to top the Hawkeyes' 12-8 Big Ten mark of last year and harder to duplicate last year's conference tournament championship, but it looks a whole lot easier now than when Iowa lost its first three league games this season. And now, Iowa women's basketball. Big Ten bottom feeders, no match for Iowa. Hawkeyes going for 27th straight win over Badgers by Jeff Linder. The Big Ten women's basketball hierarchy consists of three tiers. There's a high five of which the Iowa Hawkeyes certainly are a member. There's a low five and there's four teams that fall in between. When the Hawkeyes run into one of the lower tiered teams, a knockout is inevitable. They come out really focused and they maintain their intensity even with a big lead, Iowa coach Lisa Bluter said Tuesday. Our bench, they want to play. They want to show what they're capable of doing. The fifth-ranked Hawkeyes, 25 overall, 12-2 Big Ten, face their final game against a bottom-tier team tonight. Tip-off with Wisconsin, 8-18-3-11, is 6.30 p.m. at Carver-Hawkeye Arena. Iowa has defeated the Badgers 26 straight times, a streak that dates to 2007, including a 102-71 romp at Madison on December 7th. It seems like forever since we've played them, Bluter said. In its previous six games against the Big Ten's bottom, Penn State twice, Rutgers, Wisconsin, Minnesota, and Northwestern, the Hawkeyes have averaged 99.3 points per game and allowed 62.3. They've broken out of the gate early, leading by an average of 9.5 points after the first quarter. In all six games, they have held a double-digit lead, ranging from 12 points, Minnesota, to 32, Sunday against Rutgers. The average halftime score is 52.5 to 30.3. They have shot 55% or better in five of the six games, above 60% twice. Simply put, they're not messing around. In Sunday's 111-57 dismantling of Rutgers, all 14 players scored, and the Hawkeyes scored 61 bench points. I enjoyed seeing the reaction of the starters on the bench, rejoicing in their teammates' success, Bluter said. Wednesday marks the Hawkeyes' second-to-last regular season home game, and the finale, February 26th against Indiana, is sold out. Iowa has averaged 10,446 fans in its 14 home games this season. In its seven Big Ten home games, that number jumps to 11,339. After Wednesday, the Hawkeyes have road challenges against Nebraska Saturday and Maryland Tuesday before that rematch with Indiana that could have league championship implications. It's a great opportunity, Bluter said. If we win out, we could be co-champions. McKenna Warnock continues to work her way back into shape after suffering a rib cage injury at Michigan State on January 18th. In her four games back, she is averaging 8.3 points and 6.0 rebounds per game. She's not going to tell us even if it does hurt, Bluter said. I ask, how do you feel? And she says, good. That's all I'm going to get out of her. She's a really tough individual. And that does it for today's reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Wednesday, February 15th, 2023. I'm your reader, Janet Griffith. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thanks for listening.